Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio, from creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets. Here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. This is episode 233. I am mostly last night's Thanksgiving dinner. I don't know how the heck I ate that much sweet potatoes and that much turkey. It's a little bit ridiculous. You know what they say, you are what you eat, but you probably know me better as Vincent Diamante. And I'm just hanging out here with a lot of guys that you know from the Game Audio Hour crew, as well as some other people. But let's go through that one by one. Uh, first off, to another person who I'm assuming celebrated Thanksgiving in some way because he is here in America, in California. Mike, how are you doing today? I am doing well. My traditional gluttony had to be negotiated a little bit because since the beginning of this year, I've been limited to a gluten-free diet. So I couldn't indulge to the full traditional extent where you basically eat yourself to a, a state of unconsciousness. But fortunately, the, uh, the Thanksgiving get-together to which I went was very accommodating. There were some decent, uh, there was a decent number of gluten-free items. So uh, I did participate in Thanksgiving in the uh, tried and true American fashion. That's awesome. Yeah, America. You hear that? You hear that, Alex? <laughs> Uh, yes. Hello. <laughs> that's, that's like the best transition ever, I think. And speaking of America, um, we had, uh, here in, in Stockholm the last, um, uh, last week for about four days, we had a, a major, major snowstorm come through, which, uh, dumped, uh, I don't know, this is the America part, something like 4,963 quart inch foot Fahrenheit of snow on us. <laughs> Um, ah, yes. Uh, in in your comical measurement system, uh, and uh, yeah, actually, it's a uh, it was pretty serious. Actually, like it's a huge, huge amount of snow all of a sudden. Uh, so the uh, the emergency, all the buses were switched off, and the trains were off, and and uh, everything kind of shut down briefly. Uh, luckily, I work from home, so I wasn't really affected very much. But uh, that was exciting. Uh, so yes, that is to say, I'm very well. Thank you, Vince. Thank you for asking. <laughs> No, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Uh, regardless of the unit of measurement, uh, that much snow sounds pretty tough. So uh, I'm glad that you're doing okay over there. Uh, but also over there in relatively close proximity to you, not so much to us here in the U.S., but um, this guy, I guess you could consider him a neighbor. Uh, we have a guest on the show today, and that is Martin Stee Anderson, who is... Uh, a fantastic video game composer and sound designer uh, who's worked on a bunch of stuff over the last decade plus. Um, Martin, we're so glad to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. And yeah, I'm excited to be here as well. Um, I just had a normal day. Thanksgiving isn't really a, a thing here yet. I think we tend to adopt everything American, you know, like Halloween and things like that. So I guess eventually, maybe it's already there. I just didn't, you know, notice. But uh, yeah, we'll see about that. That's okay. Quite honestly, um, exporting 
the idea of consuming turkey for pleasure is not something I I would be super proud of uh, of standing behind. I mean, turkey is one of those things that you work with and tolerate, and uh, it's. Yeah, you know, it takes so much work to actually make that thing happen. But uh, you know, working incredibly inefficiently in a space that requires that in order to get something somewhat suitable, maybe that makes sense for us as sound designers. I don't know. It's like it always seems like in order to get the best out of something, you kind of have to do something a little bit crazy or um, off the beaten path. Uh, you know, as opposed to like all these other things, all these other different foodstuffs where there is a, a traditional way of doing things. You understand the the accepted way to cook beef, the accepted way to cook potatoes or something like that. Okay, maybe I'm going a little crazy right now trying to make a silly analogy work because we're supposed to be talking about sound right now. Um, let, let's just Let's just do this hard cut here. No more talking about Thanksgiving. No more talking about turkey. Let's talk about sound because you've had a really illustrious career in games, and that's really cool. But uh, one of the things that I actually noticed is that before all this great work that you've done in games is some of the work that you've done with art and art installations. And I think it would be really great for you to talk about some of that earlier work that you've done before you sort of rocketed to to fame in the game world, both indie and AAA in the in the 2010s. Um, how does that sound? Sounds good. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot. And um, yeah, I actually like when I was young, I was playing uh, in in rock bands and stuff like that, and was very interested in kind of studio production you know like the concept albums of pink floyd and stuff like that so the bands i were playing in were usually you know almost never playing live it's all about like be rehearsing and recording mm. um and then at some point i, th- I think um i got um interested in more like um to say like advanced music uh, i didn't necessarily want everything to go in in four four and and stuff like that and that was kind of the way uh, the kind of maybe a reason i got um, interested in contemporary music so that, that was actually the first step you know to to go from this kind of um, rock pop background into um, a contemporary uh, composition mm. um so um then i i went to conservatory uh, and studied um I don't know what what you call it really like um, more like traditional composition, so composing for ensembles and orchestras and things like that. Um, but actually, as soon as I got in there and I I, I did compose a, a bunch of pieces, but then I got interested in electroacoustic composition, just like recording uh, sounds and making, you know, like sound collage, kind of a maybe it's more like collage than than music, like in, mm. in a traditional sense. I think there's a lot of people who wouldn't recognize it as, as music. Um, and I couldn't study that in uh, in Denmark, so I went to City University in, in London to, to study that. Um, and, and while I was studying that, I got interested in more like audiovisual 
uh, stuff. Um, so it was actually while I was studying there, uh, even though I had like a professional career and on the side, it was actually at that point I started to to work on, on Limbo. It's true. Um, between conservatory in Denmark and, and then, you know, Limbo, I had like almost 10 years of, of doing um, more uh, experimental work, uh, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, like in, in installation and, and also doing like what we call like tape pieces, you know, just like um, fixed media, um, stuff that's not performed or anything, but uh, things that's more like, Again, electroacoustic, acousmatic uh, uh, composition. That's um, super cool. I'm kind of wondering, actually, when you're talking about uh, contemporary music, um, you know, th- those typical lenses that you can look through, it, it could be really anything. Um, so when you started out doing more traditional music composition before you, uh, before your foray into more electroacoustic media who were you looking at when it came to contemporary music composers for for inspiration and for guidance it's, it's kind of fun like it seems like no matter what, what i do i'm i'm always looking to to france and, and paris so <laughs> uh, at that time you know like very quickly i just got really inspired by the um, uh, spectral composers like uh, tristan morai and and Cosset. Um, um, for example, Murai did this wonderful piece, I think it's called Gondwana, where he orchestrated uh, an extended uh, hit on a, on a, on a gong mm. or a tam-tam. Uh, so he basically orchestrated, uh, take all these kind of partials and then put them into an orchestral piece. So actually that, in a, in a fun way, it also became one of... Um, uh, my movement into electroacoustic composition because before I did, uh, for example, an orchestral piece, I would make like a sound collage and then I would make a spectral uh, analysis of that. Then I would orchestrate that um, analysis into an orchestral piece. So you could kind of hear, uh, you know, the the sound lying behind it, Uh, but obviously it turned into something else as well. So there was a kind of a, you know, a layer of ambiguity in there. You could kind of hear that something was going on, and and of, and of course it sounded like uh, very abstract, mm. probably too too abstract to my t- to my taste today. <laughs> but uh, you know, you just have to to experiment uh, when you're young. Yeah, that's one of the um, any of our uh, listeners who are familiar with Martin's work uh, will probably be able to attest to that's one of the most interesting and unique defining characteristics of the work that you do, Martin, because it's often the line between uh, sound effects in a video game and the music, the music textures in the video game. Most games that uh, um, ha- uh, that you've worked on, there's a very blurry, blurry sort of mixture of sound effects, like in-game sound effects and sound effect cues for gameplay purposes and you know musical textures for um aesthetic and emotional purposes they kind of gel together in this this sort of moving throbbing kind of kind of uh organic organic uh entity of of sound in your work which is which is always very very inspiring because i think a lot of us 
come into the the field of game audio with this assumption that they're, they're they're separate you know you do sound effects or you do music and you choose one or you do both and if you do both you know now i'm doing sound effects today now i'm doing music today and they don't really tend to sort of mix so easily like the way that you seem to be able to do it yeah i i think um, my way into it was actually realizing that the tools that i was using for composition were exactly the same as sound designers were using <laughs> and, and then i just got um, really interesting in in reading stuff like from water merch and and those kind of uh, people michel chung it, it is funny like i i consider myself very much a, a sound designer as well as a music composer but for me personally there is a a kind of a a rather strict divide uh, both mentally as well as from a business standpoint in terms of what's being asked of me and when it comes to the various contracts uh, that I work with. Um, and it's actually kind of funny when I when I sometimes listen to the projects that you have worked on, you know, mostly games, and I, I, I do have this feeling that I'm not just um, listening to the music or sounds, but I am... I have a little bit of like the sight part of insight in terms of how you're actually uh, making those sounds. <laughs> it's funny how you mention, you know, um, like uh, Tristan Mirai, because I always think about not just the sound of it, but also the, the visual conception of it in my mind. And I have a similar feeling sometimes when I listen to some of your game work where I feel like I can really envision the spectrogram as I'm so comfortable with working in as a sound designer and as a music composer, but I don't really think about that as uh, one of those tools for as I'm actually creating either the music or the sound in general. Um, so I'm, I'm actually kind of wondering from there, like, how does the the visual actually have an impact on how you conceptualize audio in general? Um, not much, at least I'd like to to believe. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's true that I often work in a spectrogram and also like on, on inside, as as you mentioned, I was using tools like Audio Sculpt, which is from from Earcam. Mm. Again, in uh, in in France, um, it looks a bit like um, RX. Um, it does have some functionality. Uh, I've been using it for twenty years. Um, uh, back in the day, where you had to, you know, wait an hour to render a minute. That's of course um, a lot faster now. But it has stuff like um, uh, really good, like cross synthesis and source filtering. So you take like one sound and then you filter another uh, through it. Um, so if you have like a, a percussive element, um, then you can kind of um, play a, a more like pitched um, uh, sound through that percussion to kind of activate uh, the harmonic uh, material. Of course, today you can do many of the same things with like convolution. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's that's. Um, apart from that, I I don't think that's that's a big um, difference. Um, obviously, I'm working uh, when composing. I'm I'm working like um, solely with um, 
the audio assets. So I'm not looking at any like MIDI uh, information. It's just like um, like um, patching wave files together in a in a in a door, basically. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Do you uh, do you perform all your when you're working with synthesizer textures? Are you performing that old school as if you're recording that and then manipulating it after the fact? Um, mostly, I'm just recording stuff in the real world um, that can even be like Foley or uh, sound artists or uh, instrumentalists um, improvising. Uh, and then I'm um, just taking those sounds to the studio and processing them and playing one through sound through another. So um, I'm, I'm not really using any like uh, keyboards or, or playing anything in that way, unless I, you know, play like an object in myself. So, for example, on, on, on Back for Blood, uh, a recent game I did, I was playing a lot on on a Wasp bass, for example. Nice, I, I approve. Um, <laughs> one one um, uh, interesting thing um, that I was thinking because I actually. Uh, I had the pleasure of seeing Martin at the recent reboot event in Croatia, where Mark uh, Martin delivered a, a talk about some of his handiwork with Audio Kinetic Wise. Um, I'm curious to ask. I, I think I actually, I think we did talk about this, uh, but <laughs> might be interesting for our listeners to to uh, hear hear it as well. But I'm curious to ask the the the, tr the point at which you stop working with creating these source wave files and start working in WISE. Because one thing that's very interesting, again, a, a standard workflow for most of us, I believe, would be that, you know, we prepare all of this stuff uh, and we're, we're thinking of the audio specification as we're working and as we're creating our source assets. And when we come to WISE, uh, it's really just a, a very utilitarian, pragmatic approach to, okay, I need that, so I create the vent, uh, do that. Okay, that's that done. I need this, so I do that, and that's that done. There's one of the things that I really enjoyed about the talk that you gave in uh, Croatia was that um, it's very, very, it seems very, very apparent that you enjoy basically using WISE like your kind of expressive tool and experimenting and having fun trying different kinds of things within WISE as a creative tool rather than as a, uh, you know, a pragmatic utilitarian tool for just achieving a sound specification. So I'm curious to ask, what is the point at which you decide, okay, I've got enough source stuff to work with. Now I'm going to head over to WISE, drag it all in, and just have some fun experimenting with different kinds of things that I can do. Yeah, I actually uh, prepare quite a lot of sound before making that jump. I, I have to say, I, I think it's um, unfortunate that you ever had to make that jump. I think <laughs> it, maybe it's it's our current paradigm, you know, that we create our assets in one environment and then we implement it in another where I think like mm. ideally you would just have like one environment where you could do uh, everything. But, but, but whether I compose in wise uh, in, in a door, I usually prepare um, enough material that I have a feeling that it's, that it's going to work because um, if it's, if I'm not like fully prepared, then I easily, then I have the habit of saying, "Oh no, that's not working." You know, I'll just start over, start over again. So I always kind of 
prepared quite a quite a lot of work before going there. But then, it's true, um, at least for uh, for for back for blood that a lot of the composition then actually happens in 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 Y. So I have this idea that okay, now I have this kind of bunch of uh, maybe one bar um, rhythms uh, and these weird sounds and I could combine it in, in this way and sometimes I would also in uh, in my door which is uh, Nuendo I'll just make like small sketches just to kind of approve um, prove to myself that I'm you know that this this could amount to something in wise but it's 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 uh, it's true that when I get in, into wise and it's more like the compositional process that starts. In respect for blood, I think it's the first game I've done where if anyone came into my studio and asked me to play some music from the game, I wouldn't be able to play anything <laughs> unless I, I, I launched a game or a wise and, and press play and, and messed around with some parameters because, you know, it's just like, small snippets and of, mm. of, of audio that's kind of sewed together mm. in the you, game. you must have um you must have a great difficulty when people ask you to do a soundtrack yeah i'm, I'm always kind of um you know one one sign of me want you know people to ask and another doesn't you know? <laughs> <laughs> because i i know that for example on on control i did quite a lot of mock-ups then because um, the implementation was actually handled by a couple of um, audio programmers or music designers at, at Remedy. So I made some kind of mock-ups to show how I kind of envisioned the, the sounds playback. I was still delivering this more like granular uh, uh, material, but but in the end I was actually, and, and the same is, is true for Limbo, I was actually launching the um, the wise project from from control and then just playing around with events and parameters and then capturing uh, oh, the outcome and then mixing it into the the mockups that I've done mm. thinking about the other end of the process uh, do you are you typically extended a lot of trust and creative freedom from the developers you work with uh, given that this kind of music is probably not easy to prototype or demo in advance? Yeah, that's that's a really good question because I'm often, you know, a bit scared in, in the way that, uh, you know, it's, it's not like I make a sketch and then I de develop that sketch into something uh, finished. It's like, because it's everything is done through um, experimentation. So... As soon as I find something and and I think it's it's working working, you know, then then it's what I got, then it's then it's what I get on with and 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 develop. It's, it's not something. It's not necessarily something that I'm in in uh, in control of. Um, so I think it's yeah. If um, if a developer wanted me to change something, it would actually be really difficult. It would probably mean that I would. Uh, start over basically because it's not <laughs> it's not it's not that, that I can change the tempo uh, uh, mm. or things like that. So so yeah, fortunately, on the projects I'm working on, I, I had quite a lot of uh, creative freedom. I think it's also what I do. Maybe it's it's kind of niche in a way. I'm not 
I'm not a very versatile composer at all. So I think like when people ask me to to work on a game, then it's because they're kind of looking for that sort of mm. weird, weird thing. That'd be a fun thing. Imagine, uh, imagine asking, asking Martin, uh, would you, would you mind just like doing this, you know, I don't know, free to play match three mobile, <laughs> mobile game with a, with a fun, kooky, whimsical soundtrack. <laughs> It'd be interesting <laughs> to see what you'd come up with if, if you had to do that. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I'm not, I'm not, uh, against cliches. I love cliches. Um, but I, I always like to, to give it a big twist. Mm. <laughs> so I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't be the, the person to do something like that, like straight up. Yeah. I, I can imagine that if, if, if you scored a, a match three mobile free to play game, you would end up seriously disturbing a lot of players <laughs> probably um, i would argue that match three games are canvases waiting for experimentation because they're so abstract they don't need any particular musical style and the players uh over time are becoming slowly numb and some kind of interesting musical stimuli could really shake up that genre well there you go, d d uh, developers and publishers of the world. Now is your chance. <laughs> Here's how you can really differentiate yourself from Bejeweled and all those other games. That's right. That's right. How about the um, um, the visual aspect of a game? Like, for example, in a project that you come into, um, uh, I assume that at the beginning of the project, when you're brought on, you'll be invited to, you know, you'll be briefed with, um, as well as, gameplay information and perhaps narrative information you'll also be briefed with you know concept art and, and visuals from the game at whatever stage of development it's at um when you're working with a style of music which is abstract often atonal or not tonal at all and you are um is it ever difficult for you to uh take mock-ups and ideas that you have when you're presenting it to um, uh, directors, and uh, I guess what I'm getting at is, if if somebody shows you this picture of, like, a, okay, here's an alien planet, and it's got a purple sky, and there's like a, a ringed Saturn up there, and there's like a spaceship flying off into the distance, could you make some music for this, please? And then you'll go and create something in your style. You bring it along. I'm curious how your conception of the connection between the visual aspect of the game and the sounds that you produce, how do you convey that uh, in an effective way when you're presenting mock-ups like that? Or is it, have you been fortunate that it's mostly been the case that they, they expect that when they contract you, they're going to be getting something like that. So the visual connection, they just trust that you have it in your mind what the visual connection is between the, the game's aesthetic appearance and the music that you're producing is. Yeah, I think if fortunately, at least so far, that has been the been the case. Um, I, I'm actually trying when I deliver something, you know, not to send any words along. It can be mm. a bit scary. Sometimes you want to explain, uh, maybe defend why you did something. Right. Um, but I'm actually always just, you know, uh, sending the stuff, you know, because then, then it's not like if they have all these words, 
in their he- their head while they they're listening. You you know they then they're maybe gonna judge it in 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 a non intended intended way. So I think it's actually important just to trust your guts and then you know send the the audio and uh, without any kind of explanation. What's the most awkward feedback that you've ever received? <laughs> mm. Yeah, I can't think of it. Okay, uh, I was thinking. I was hoping it might be something like, "Could could you make it in C C major?" <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, wrong guy. <laughs> yeah, often I don't really know which which key it's in in the first place. So. <laughs> that that yeah, that was the point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you're using Nuendo. Is there a specific reason that uh, that's your DAW of choice, or it's just been what you've been using the whole time? I've been using quite a lot of DAWs over the year, um, over the years. Um, so, like Digital Performer and, and Logic and uh, Pro Tools. Um, I think I, before I went to Nuendo, Again, I was working in, in Pro Tools and there was just too many limitations there and it's too expensive and yeah, mm. it's, it's just a lot of uh, flexibility in uh, Nuendo for even for not, not scripting, but you can set up logic and, and macros and all that kind of things. So it's it's really, there's a lot of opportunities there. Mm. But, but other than that, I, I don't think it, it matters a lot, which you use no not really Mm. well i was actually wondering about that because i know starting maybe two or three years back there was um at the time much made about the um, the interconnection between nuendo and wise and being able to move assets and and track asset usage across nuendo projects um and i'm just wondering if is that a factor in how you actually are able to work, um, you know, work so well within Wise after you bring everything over, or could you pretty much do the same thing regardless of the DAW? Yeah, I think I could do the same thing regardless. Um, there was some neat functionality with um, yeah, Wise and Duendo. I think that has been developed now and is is even bigger with Reaper. Um, but I think the stuff that I've been doing, there were, yeah, there was some practical things. Like when I, I worked uh, on, on control, I was creating some MIDI instruments in, um, in Wise, and then I could play it from, um, from Nuendo, uh, which I'm using on a Mac and, and Wise on a PC. So it's really easy to connect the two. And then when I made a, a piece, I could just drag the MIDI file uh, in in Nuendo and on my Mac into this kind of Wise plugin, and then it would appear in the Wise project. So that was that was kind of practical, but I think often I'll just connect the um, PC and Mac, and then just drag stuff into the originals folder. And maybe you know, just if I update any assets, and I'll just bounce it from from my Mac from Nuendo, and then directly into the originals folder. But it, yeah, there was some neat things, but it wasn't like a. It it wouldn't be, an argument to, to choose Nuendo. 
I guess we um we won't dwell on on gear for too long, but if you were to choose one tool, one hardware tool and one software tool, so one plugin, let's say, and one uh, piece of hardware from your studio as being your, you know, the tool that always puts a smile on your face, always gets the job done, just something that you really, really depend on and really enjoy using and, and would love to recommend to people, what would those be? Um, I think for the plugin, it wouldn't be like a creative thing. Often it's kind of, you know, what, what you use the most and the most dependent on more like practical stuff. So mm. maybe a plugin like Soothe. Mm. Um, it's just really neat for, for kind of taming like peaks and, and the frequency spectra. Mm. And then for the hardware, it would probably be the, the Studer, the tape recorder. <laughs> I use it mostly mm. just for, for running. I have it connected to Nuendo, so I can just like, um, I've set up like a plugin in Nuendo, so it just runs signal into the Studer and, and back again. But, but you can also do like creative stuff with it. So I'd probably choose that. Wow. Is that a, how many tracks is it? Is that two track or is it, is it more two, than that? Two track. Okay. Is the, is the tape expensive? No, it, you can just buy it at uh, yeah, uh, a music shop. Wow. Is there a particular tape formula that you rely on or you just grab what you can? <laughs> um, there's a, I guess you could use whatever, but when it's calibrated, it's calibrated to a specific um, format. And then I just keep buying that. Mm, okay. So I have to ask then, like how, could you give us an example of uh, the, the kind of things that you would do with your tape machine in terms of, you know, you have it nicely set up in new window, so it's easy to access, but beyond, I, I, I assume you're doing much more with it than just, you know, running, running it through and, and, and taking the, the compression characteristics and some of the saturation characteristics of the tape recording and using that. I'm, I assume you're doing more than that, but what kind of things would you use it for? Uh, mostly that actually just running oh, okay. stuff through and, and, I, and I think it's because um, the recordings I do um, often they're very experimental and they doesn't necessarily sound good oh. say um, <laughs> it could be stuff that I've been experimenting with um, cross synthesis and it sounds a bit digital uh, or something then then I just have all my hardware um, set up in, in Nuendo and then I use it to kind of make it sound um, real, like it was uh -huh. uh, potentially like a real sound. Uh, but other than that, I can kind of trim the input and output of the studer. So it's, um, it's a cool way to, to make a distortion. Mm. Um, so for example, if, and I think that's um, particularly relevant in, in games, um, because if you want to establish a loud environment, then it can't really be loud because then, you know, it will very quickly become annoying to the player. So, um, yeah, for example, in, in Limbo, you're in this factory area. So that I used um, the studer and I guess you could use any sort of um, um, uh, distortion. Um, but to, to create the, the feel that this is a really loud environment without it actually without it actually being loud. It also helps sometimes if there's sounds that have like different um, 
kind of in an intrinsic loudness. Uh, I can kind of, you know, keep that relation between the sound by not normalizing them, and then I can kind of process them through um, a distortion unit or, or the studer. And then I would kind of retain the kind of balance between the sounds, so the louder sounds would get more distorted than the softer ones. So it's just a, a kind of a way to create more dynamic without uh, having to to annoy the player too much. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever experimented with any software emulations of studio tape decks, uh, like soft tubes tape or plugins along those lines? Um, yes, uh, because sometimes uh, I do um, stuff where there's a lot of um, like if it's if it's like uh, complex setups where there's a lot of um, stuff that have to be processed or for, for prototyping. Then I actually have plugin formats of um, most of the hardware that I use. But but it's it's kind of interesting because usually I, I do like a a blind test, so basically just like random click, you know, the bypass on on, on the studer. Then I decide whether you know I like it or not, even though the, the difference is so subtle. And then like the real studer, it ends up like on maybe ninety percent of, of of the stuff that I run through the door. But if I use the emulation. It's um, it's down to ten or something. So, mm. and I'm not I'm not exactly sure what it is. And it's yeah. Speaking of the um, the twin tube, it's the same with the twin tube. I I can hear that it does something, but it's 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 not um, it's not the same as as the hardware. Maybe it's because the hardware uh, maybe they sound a bit different from each other or something. Although I, I do believe in a way, and especially with reverbs like uh, spring reverbs and plates, like uh, the complexity in there is just like uh, infinite. You, know, you, can, you would never be able to emulate that. Even, even how, how much you measure it, you would, you would never be able to, to reach that, that point. That's fantastic, Vince or Mike. Have you ever actually uh, um, outputted any of your stuff to to any form of reel or tape? Uh, not in a very long time, like literally decades. <laughs> so, uh, the last time I ever had to deal with either two track or twenty four track tape was back in college, <laughs> like back in the early two thousands. And I think I've mentioned this. Uh, before on the show, so I won't belabor it, but basically early on, we actually studied audio engineering and we had an SSL, we had the big Studer tape machine. Um, and then towards the end of my studies in undergrad, everything had made the transition to digital. Uh, so digital console, uh, Pro Tools machines, and uh, I've been pretty much digital since then. Although I have been thinking about tape emulation uh, hardware, not necessarily a big studer, but um, things like these uh, hardware tape emulators. So uh, I've been really, I've found myself really fond of the stuff from Rupert Neve Designs, and they have these hardware tape emulators. It's, it's called the 
the 542 tape emulator. It just comes in a, a 500 series box that you could throw in there and supposed to emulate tape very, very well, uh, better than uh, most software out there. Uh, but still, you know, hearing what you were saying, Martin, about how, you know, there's still that 10%. Sometimes you actually do prefer what you get out of the software plugin. That that actually gives me a little more pause there uh, about just how far the software has come. So that's really cool. I think in many cases, you know, often the software emulations of these tools, uh, they subtlety is a very hard thing to sell a software emulation of, for example, a, a, a tape deck or a real deck on. It, it's very hard to sell it on subtlety. So you end up having to sell it on, you know, making it very, very obvious. Um, one of my favorite, actually, this is kind of a timely topic because I've also been considering getting a cassette deck to record. Cause I, as you know, I work in sort of, I guess, more purist electronica genres of different types and getting a cassette deck to master to cassette tape on is something I've been considering because I've, I use a lot, uh, a plugin called cassette by waves factory, which is a cassette simulator. But it is so obvious. <laughs> it's it's so, and and they obviously they sell it to be a cassette emulator. So therefore, it's just really kind of uh, blatant. Yes, okay, I hear it, I get it. It sounds like a cassette tape. Uh, so I've, yeah, I've I've also been sort of thinking about um, uh, something like that as well as 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 something that could potentially augment the the things that I'm doing as well. So. Yeah, software and emulations, it's its a tough market because, you know, you need to make it obvious enough for people to feel like, wow, I, I, I want that for my system, especially people who've, you know, grown up in the digital era of, era of music production. Yeah, and I, I guess it's just, um, it doesn't necessarily have to, you know, replicate fully, you know, the, the hardware. I guess it's more like certain quality that we, that we like, you know, like a, plate <clears throat> plate reverb uh, things like that and then you can you can kind of get something that's 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 pretty close to it mm. thing thing from for my part it's, it's just like um, the source that i'm using um as I mentioned often you know doesn't sound very good sometimes i destroy you know the uh, the, the sources i'm i'm working with just to kind of restore them again and then i have to put some kind of uh, life uh, into into them and and I just found and then you know it's just like a personal thing and I'm not I don't want to suggest that hardware is better than, than software I guess it's you know it comes down to to personal um, taste but it's just for me it's um, it's it's one thing that 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 helps me um, move forward with the sound you know to to get that sort of uh, vitality into the sound that that kind of makes me like it uh, in, in a way. <laughs> but, but speaking of ca cassette decks, it's definitely um, fun fun to work with. So I, I'd recommend that. <laughs> Great! I already blew my budget on Black Friday stuff. If I hadn't have done that, I probably could have bought a cheap cassette deck from Reverb. But oh well. <laughs> on that note, uh, with Reverb. We've already spent a lot of time avoiding the whole thing about purchasing new gear, but you know, 
uh, I imagine that there are things that you're on the lookout for uh, when it comes to uh, new ways to capture material. So um, are there things that you that you earmark on the web, uh, places that you look and specific things that you're on the lookout for? Um, not, not particularly. I think I've um, been looking for some years for a plate reverb, but they're just like, you, you can't, they, they're not, they're non-reachable. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I love, I love to, there's a studio in Copenhagen that has like five or six and he even allows me to kind of open it up and play it with friction mallets and things like that. So that's, um, so maybe I don't, I don't need one. But, uh, maybe, oh. maybe you could make, make your own one. Because apparently yeah. making a base a basic plate reverb, it, I mean, it's obviously it's not easy, but especially making a good sounding plate reverb. But uh, uh, apparently that the the technology is is relatively primitive. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. And I also wonder why there isn't anyone producing them. Maybe it's just like impractical because they have to be so big. Mm. Yeah, the shipping costs. I don't think you're doing free overnight shipping on those things. No. <laughs> no. Uh, but but you actually have uh, you actually have uh, some hardware reverbs. Uh, like I see the AKG there, uh, right yeah. by you. Is, is there anything else that you have on hand? Uh, um, yeah, that's a couple of um, in terms of reverbs. Uh, um, yeah, only the two spring reverbs, but uh, they're. Um, sounding really nice like uh, the bx15 is a bit springy and a bit like brass sounding it was kind of interesting i was using it a lot on, on wolfenstein because if i played my sound through them they all if like um, i play like metallic sound they got this kind of brassy uh, quality to it so it's, yeah so it sounds a bit like a brass section or something that was pretty interesting and then the bx20 that's more clean it just sounds really good, actually, and uh, it have a lot of dimension to it. I think it's a, like a six meter spring that's kind of folded mm. within it. Wow, that's a really nice, nice sound. That's cool. awesome. I, I know. And also for for sorry for digital reverb, I'm using the TC Electronic System huh. Six Thousand. I really love the the sound of of that one. DC Electronic is a Danish company, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know them? Uh, no, they're actually from my um, uh, city of, of birth. So, um, but I went there once, but they, I was just like stealthing around the office and. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know them. Martin, a a, a big picture question. Uh, for our listeners who may not be that familiar with your work, but who have grown intrigued and interested during the course of listening to this conversation, can you uh, indicate a few titles um, that you think are representative of your style or that are your personal favorites so that newcomers can jump in and, and get to experience your music? Um, yes, I, I don't know. Um, I was about to say sadly that there was isn't a lot of my soundtracks uh, available but that's kind of lucky as well because it would take an insane amount of, of work to do but um i guess the best place to listen is actually soundcloud because i i even have some pieces there that are not 
uh, kind of official uh, in a way. But I think maybe um, the soundtrack from Control is you can find everywhere. So maybe that's I think that's kind of a good thing to to listen to. Um, that's also the Limbo soundtrack is also um, kind of widely available, mm. and that that also kind of represents the, the style or whatever you want to call it um, that I'm doing. Oh, that's that's the one I know best personally of your works, and uh, I think I just listened to that on Spotify. Um, do, do you also feel that those two soundtracks, you know, given the indeterminacy of some of your work and how it's dynamically composed by Wise or, or you know, the tools you're using, do you, do you feel that those static soundtracks are reasonably representative of the experience in-game? Um, I'm not sure, actually, um, because when you're playing the game, the the, the, the sounds always combine in, in, in new ways. So I think it's it's two very... It's two very different scenarios. So the sounds are composed for, you know, like a, a non non linear media where they can, as I say, like they can uh, appear in new uh, combinations. Uh, whereas for a soundtrack, uh, I'm trying to organize the sound into something that makes sense, like in terms of being a linear composition. So one thing I enjoy when playing control, for example, is there's a lot of stuff that I think sound cool and which I don't think I composed, but it's just stuff that, that happens. It's 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 my sounds playing. I can recognize my sounds, but uh, I never heard the music before. So I think that's really nice. But um, to hear that on Spotify, I don't think that would make a lot of sense. I'm just actually uh, reacting to that, thinking, "Oh, that is a great feeling." And I've, I've had that happen for me personally on a few soundtracks that were specifically very, very interactive. But the vast majority of the music that I've done, it's, oh yeah, that's the track. That I know exactly how this music goes. Maybe there's a little transition there that I might not have heard done in that same space, but I know exactly what that transition is. So there's very little surprise that happens when I go back to anything that I've done. And I find myself actually rather jealous that you've gotten to experience that with some of your projects. Yes, and it's definitely an, an interesting experience, but I think sometimes I'm thinking like in the compositional process that that ideally, if um, you separate um, the music from the game, uh, the music should be ruined it's because it it should be it should kind of coexist with the with the game. It's there should be some kind of synergy that kind of makes the two things you know greater greater than than the sum. If that makes sense, yeah, almost inseparable. Yeah, yeah. This is this is um a little bit of a uh, segue into the our um our usual conspicuous consumption part of the show. But I am actually playing Control right now. I've been playing it for about the past two weeks, I think, and I'm pretty close to the end. Um, yeah, the game's okay, but man, the the audio, it's so I have to say. One thing that's really, really fascinating is that 
I almost feel like there's no music. Like it almost feels like if you said, oh, how's the music for control? I, I don't really know. <laughs> mm. But the sound design and the implementation and the way that the music kind of um, flows into the experience of playing the game. Uh, and I mean, the gameplay aside, the control is an utterly, utterly staggeringly beautiful game to look at. Uh, and the the whole premise is based around, you know, the supernatural and uh, things like that. Um, uh, the 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 sound effects and the, the 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 there's a very sort of visceral kinetic nature to the the, the sound overall because a lot of the game involves you know using uh, things like telekinesis to to um, control control uh, things in the environment and to move things around. There's very clearly it it feels like there was a mandate given to you don't make anything sound magical. <laughs> don't make it, it, it shouldn't sound magical. It should sound super physical. And all of the sound effects work together so well to give you that feeling that it's, it's just very kinetic, very, very physical. And um, uh, yeah, it's interesting that the music, obviously I'm playing it, you know, I, I, I got it some time ago and I, uh, I'm playing it obviously to hear your work, but it's just, it's really interesting, you know, if somebody asked me, so how's Martin's music for Control? I would say, I, I have I actually heard it? Uh, maybe I have, but I do know that there's this deep kind of dark, unsettling, disturbing feeling about playing Control. <laughs> and that's probably your work doing its doing its thing there. Um, but yeah, this is again the the, the, the beauty of your approach of where the, the music and the sound effects, there's such a blurred line between them and they just sort of gel together that I, I can't really define what the music for Control is like, but the whole experience is incredible. Uh, thanks. I appreciate that. It's, it's kind of where I like to have the music sitting somewhere where you don't really notice and like playing on a more subliminal level. It's kind of the same in, 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 in Back for Blood. It's like the music doesn't serve, at least like the in-game music. Um, of course, there needs to be like music identity for like menu and cutscenes and things like that. But but for the in-game where you're just fighting for your life, um, that's not really um, space for, you know, appreciating melodies, uh, stuff like that. So... That was all about like creating music that's kind of supporting the, the tension, but also just like bombarding the player with information. Like every everything is kind of tied to stuff that's going on in the game. So if you were playing like competitively, I, I would imagine that you know if it wasn't tied that close to the gameplay, then people would just turn it down. But it's actually it's a disadvantage to turn the music down because it's, it's just telling you a lot of stuff about what's what's going on, uh, but in a in a more like indirect indirect way. But you definitely won't be able to to hum anything from the from the in game uh, things. But but yeah, I think it's the same with this control. What I appreciate there is you know the the way that. The music or whatever you want to call it kind of blends in with the ambiences and just like 
sits a kind of a unsettling atmosphere. I'm really curious to go and actually listen to the control soundtrack now because it, like you said, probably a lot of us like, wait, 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 did I, was this in the game? Did I hear this? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be interesting. Uh, but let's, um, let's go around the table for, uh, for conspicuous consumption. Obviously, we'd like to finish with Martin, but um, Mike, what have, what have you been consuming in, in terms of music or games or, or literature or any other, any other content that you've been getting into recently? Uh, I forgot what I said last time. Um, I've been really into this uh, novel series that's kind of a mixture of uh, 19th century technology and traditional magic-based fantasy uh, by China Mieville. Oh, yeah. The, the Perdido Street Station novel? Yeah. Yeah, it, that, that was the first book, and I, I loved it so much I, I blasted onto the second, and he's created another really interesting world uh, in this case, kind of like a pirate city that's entirely com composed of ships tethered together. Um, the devil is in the details. The, the author is so imaginative and so thorough in imagining how these worlds could be constructed that you just become intoxicated by the environment. Um, the characters are also, thank goodness, compelling, and, and there is a plot, but there's just something about his uh, imagination that's just uh, really gripping. Game-wise, uh, I've been getting back into Elden Ring. What I keep thinking about this game is, even though the music is stylistically, I think, great for evoking that kind of macabre soundscape, I really wish there was more dynamic music in that game. It would really, given the, the duration of gameplay and the endless variations uh, on the visuals, it would, be, it would be great if the music likewise evolved and grew rather than... Uh, uh, rather than essentially was a, a static set of tracks that you slowly come to recognize over time. Mm. I think that's it for me. How about you, Vince? Yeah. Um, let's see. I haven't been playing too much games. I've been trying to listen, like really, really listen to some of these albums that I have in my queue. And uh, um, I found myself absolutely stuck on uh, on a Maria Schneider kick. And, and I had listened to this uh, last year, uh, Data Lords, but then I really, really listened to it again over the last week, and I just fell in love again. Um, so um, Maria Schneider is this composer, um, mostly for like uh, you know big band jazz, but not big band jazz, like this sort of um, kind of straddling the line of you know concert art jazz and typical uh, you know more typical large ensemble jazz and. It's such an interesting album that does a lot of things that are kind of shocking in terms of their ostensibly jazz textures, but is so incredibly elegant and tuneful in in a just gorgeous, gorgeous way. And it, and it combines those things in a really, really immersive way all throughout the album. So I was just listening to it. And then listening to it again, and then listening to it again, I've, I'm just stuck on it. Um, and I think, okay, I really just need to go and not just buy the album, but also buy the score. Um, and I've actually have bought some of her previous scores and, and use it a little bit for score study, and I think it's great. Uh, just a really fantastic composer. 
And I mentioned this because I'm not sure if I've mentioned her in the past, but she really is one of my very, very favorite composers. Uh, and if you haven't heard of her, I encourage a listen. Um, yeah. Um, Alex, you mentioned Control. Is there anything else that you're playing or listening to? Uh, let's see. Um... Uh, well, no, but I guess I could kind of say that I'm consuming, uh, very happily consuming two very tasty plugins that I picked up the Black, Black Friday, which are probably worth a mention. Um, I got, uh, Oddity 3 by GeForce, which is their ARP Odyssey emulation. Uh, GeForce is a smaller, uh, developer in the UK. They mainly do emulations of vintage synthesizers like Mellotrons, and they've done um, the Oberheim SEM. Uh, I got the Oberheim SEM plugin that they did, and it's it's been a long time since I've demoed a synth plugin and really just sort of stood up, walked out of the room, wet splash water on my face, came back and just buy it straight away. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, this is just outstanding like it just i mean i've never obviously i've never had the opportunity to play a real oberheim sem but doesn't matter because it just sounds so good uh so anyway they recently released um uh their arp odyssey uh it's called oddity and this is the third incarnation of that and they've just basically tacked on a bunch of quality of life features and modulation options onto the the basic uh structure and architecture of an arp odyssey and once again, it just sounds so good. Um, so yeah, GeForce Oddity. And the other one, which will appeal to uh, a lot of our uh, um, more hardcore retro soundtrack game audio listeners, uh, is uh, Chipsynth MD by Plogue. Plogue is a developer that does um, has a really, really good... Uh, really good taste in finding interesting things to emulate. Uh, they've done a, uh, a a painfully faithful recreation of the Yamaha DX7. They've also done a, a SNES, SNES sound chip emulator, um, and a bun amongst a bunch of other interesting things. The Chipsynth MD is actually an emulator of the architecture of the Sega Mega Drive. And uh, it's a very, very basic four-pole FM synthesizer. Uh, it sounds horrible, but that's why you like it. <laughs> and that's this this uh, this emulation sounds faithfully awful. It's fantastic. So uh, uh, yeah, those are the things that I've been happily consuming uh, since purchasing these things a few days ago. Uh, so finally, Martin. Um, what have you been consuming in terms of games, music, literature, uh, film, uh, uh, food, uh, anything, <laughs> anything, any interesting things that you've been enjoying recently? Yeah, I'm currently playing um, God of War, um, ah. like uh, everyone else, uh, I guess. Uh, I've just been, um, I think I've been quite hungry for a single player uh, experience like, like that. I think that's a, at least compared to earlier, I think that's quite a shortage of that. I think a lot of develop, developers are looking into more multiplayer games, which is um, no problem with multiplayer. It's just I, I think it's it's important that there's uh, single-player experiences as well. So it's not too often they, they appear, those kind of you know, like 
AAA blockbuster, high production value, single player narrative driven game. So <clears throat> yeah, I'm enjoying that so far. I think I've been playing 10 hours so far, which is um, quite a lot for me. I, I try to play to play many different games, but it's it's rare that I get like 10 hours into a game, I, I have to admit. I just I think it's read that it's about 40 hours. I'm not I'm not sure I'm gonna I'm gonna make that. I, I think I got like the, the the main like impression now, and I'm still enjoying it. But uh, yeah, we'll see how how that goes. Fantastic. And, the, and then I'm currently watching a TV show uh, called The Midnight Club by um, Mike Flanagan, um, who I think is really interesting um, director. It's a bit mainstream, and then at the same time, it's it's very unusual, uh, or maybe a, a better word would be like pop culture in a way, but there's some kind of uh, Lynchian traces in there. It's really kind of um, dreamy in a way. And it's that, this, the genre, if you don't know, it's like a horror. Um, and he made uh, also... All on Netflix, he made a couple of um, series called um, The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of, of Bly Manor. And those series, they're kind of related in a way. And then on the paper, they're, they're not, but there's some of the same actors and some of the characters seems like reincarnations of, of others. And then the way he, he plays with uh, form is really interesting. So if you watch like half of a series and Maybe you think, okay, now I got the narrative structure of each um, episode. But then, you know, if there's a couple of episodes where uh, the next episodes just start where the the last one ended, uh, then if you really get to like a, a, a like a real cliffhanger, then he will go in a, a total other direction when the next episode starts. And then, also if it's like, I guess like if you compare it to a, a jigsaw. Puzzle. I think many series today are a bit straightforward. They're putting like one brick at the time. He's kind of making islands of, of bricks and then they just like uh, connect it uh, quite close um, to the end. And and also it's, there's some sort of really like thin line between horror and something that's heartbreaking or Something that's naive and and mature, mature, and it's and it's not always that you kind of notice the exact point where you kind of interpretation of what's going on shifts. So I think it's really playing with with um, yeah structure like form versus content. Mm. So the 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 form thing is just a big big thing in in his shows. But they're kind of they're slow as well. So if you don't like um, long monologues, it's it's not a it's probably not a show for you. But I I kind of like slow things. So it suits me well. Yeah, man, <laughs> that's really cool. Um, I'm just thinking about that in the context of um, the most recent thing I've played from you, which is uh, all the work on Back for Blood, and that is not slow at all. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, 
I've been, I've been getting my ass kicked in that, actually, as I try to ramp up the difficulty. I used to be a, a real crack shot with those games back in the day, mm. you know, the original uh, Left 4 Dead. And I realized that uh, I don't have that physical virtuosity or uh, mental intensity anymore for that type of game. I, I think I am going more on the slower route as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a real pleasure having you. It was a pleasure being in the show. Thanks a lot. This was episode 233 of the Game Audio Hour. If you liked what you heard, feel free to support us by subscribing to us at your podcast purveyor of choice and leaving us a review to keep us in the forefront of the algorithm. You can also follow us on Twitter at Game Audio Hour, where we will post notices about future episodes, as well as try to support some other fun and positive voices out there in the Twitterverse. And of course, the easy way to do all of this without having to remember any of what I just said is to go to GameAudioHour.com. So go ahead and do that while we try to figure out what to buy that we just totally do not need. Bye. And like uh, more turkey? Nah, oh yes. my good. Um, wait, well, you know those supermarkets over here, you, they try to get rid of those turkeys. They're already pretty darn cheap leading up to Thanksgiving, and then uh, it's going to be half price next week, and I don't need more turkey. Please, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, Martin, do you willingly eat or cook turkey over there? <laughs> Usually, but it's more like a Christmas thing. Yeah. Oh, Christmas! So not, uh, oh. Mostly it's duck, but the turkey is also served like regularly. Oh, okay. Christmas dinners. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna say I'm sorry. I mean, why, why turkey? <laughs> it's just it is the inferior protein option compared to almost anything else. Uh, uh, quite honestly, I will go ahead and take my smoked tofu blocks over turkey any day can of the I, uh, week can i can i shock you with an amazing piece of amazing piece of trivia i've actually never eaten turkey before all right another reason for you to come to america and experience this thing that is truly truly american turkey mass consumption of turkey